0: Well, if you have a Bible, turn it open to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We are working our way, immersing ourselves as much as we can in the story of Acts. It's the story of the church. Uh, It's our story, actually. And so as we form as a new congregation in Beaverton, we want to look back at the history of our witness. Who have we been? What has Jesus done? What has he continued to do by means of the Spirit through the church Um, The narrative of uh, Luke and Acts shows us how Christianity began as this persecuted minority Jewish sect that claimed that a crucified man was raised from the dead and he's Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. And it's telling the story of how that persecuted minority sect grew into a global movement and uh, across every ethnicity and culture and socioeconomic class and has lasted and endured with just as much vibrancy and diversity over the last 2,000 years across the globe. So the question is, what happened? Like what, what did that? Um, how did something that was so undeniably alien and objectionable within the ancient world grow to be a global movement that continues And part of the answer that we're seeing as the story unfolds is something that we would call personal conversion uh, or transformation. Uh, Last week, um, we began looking at the first of three stories that Luke tells, where he goes from telling uh, stories at a large scale of many people embracing Jesus to about three stories of individuals embracing the message of Jesus and the life change that results. And so uh, last week we saw this guy who is this Ethiopian, who's the first non-Jewish, non-Semitic person to receive Christ and go, empowered by the Spirit with a new identity as a baptized Jesus follower, um, and something happens in individual lives that goes beyond just assent to ideas to genuine conversion and change. And so um, as we look at these three pictures of what conversion looks like, there's, there's something fascinating about it. None of these stories are the same. Last week, we saw a guy who had, was just having an Old Testament Bible study, and he goes, I, there's water. i got to get baptized. Right? Like, Bible study leads to conversion in his story. This week, we're going to look at the story of somebody who's literally knocked off their horse with a vision of the resurrected Christ shining really, really bright. Right? So next week, we'll, or in two weeks, we'll look at... Uh, Oh, actually, sorry, in January, we'll look at Cornelius, again, a guy who has this vision. And so there's differences in how people are converted to Christ. Uh, What I think we can take away from that is the reality that Christ meets us personally. And yet at the same time, there's similar dynamics in each story. And so we want to look at what are the things that are in common that we can come to expect of conversion for us in the 21st century here on the west side of Portland. So what do we find In this story, take a look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Are you ready to dig in? Okay. But Saul, uh, Saul, if you remember back to chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, back to chapter 8, when Stephen had shared the Old Testament story saying that it had pointed to Jesus and the Jewish leaders stoned him, killed him, he's the first martyr. Saul is there. He's a young man in that story, and he's giving approval to the death of this Jesus follower named Stephen. And he's holding the coats of the guys who are throwing rocks. Okay, so he's complicit in this violence against a Jesus follower. And so this is Saul, our first introduction anyway, in the book of Acts, and we know that he's persecuting the church. Now, Saul still is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, a city pretty far up north, right? Lebanon. Now, uh, so that he, when he got there, he would find any belonging to the way, men or women, and he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants to sh- shut up the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, and some people have gotten out, Right, who follow Jesus, and it's spreading. And so he's trying to stop that. Right, he's trying to control what God's doing, and he's saying, No, 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 no. this isn't okay. I'm going to shut that down and bring them all back into Jerusalem, where we can contain this Jesus infection, okay, to to Judaism. And so we see Saul. He's ravaging the church at this point. And uh, one of the things that's important to understand about Saul is. He's this great illustration of somebody who's deeply antagonistic to Christianity. And he becomes this person who gives his life to the planting of churches and the spread of the gospel all over the ancient world. And um, it's probably his letters that are most uh, recognized uh, in terms of when you think of the New Testament, most people either think of the gospels or Paul's letters. right? And so he's highly influential in the end. And so while each of us may not experience the same level of radical or extreme antagonism against Christianity at any given point in our life, what we can relate to in Saul's story is he has a clear pursuit in his mind. He doesn't mind pursuing it, even if it hurts people. We've all been that person. We've all met people like that. And so what I want to look at is the dynamics of conversion in his story. Let's continue to read. Um, So he wants to bring Christians back to Jerusalem, bound for prison. Verse 3, now, he went on his way, and he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, this wasn't just Paul alone or Saul alone hanging out, having a moment. It says that there are other people who are witness to this. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, right? Their jaws are dropped, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right. What are the dynamics going on? Because that's a dramatic story, is it not? Like, this is dramatic. Um, Well, three kind of principles or realities from this text that I want to show you this morning from that that have to do with conversion for all of us. The first is this, that... um, if we are to experience conversion in a similar vein that the acts narrative is describing uh, i will I would say it this way: God has to stop you in your tracks, um, that God actually has to stop you in your tracks for conversion to actually happen. Um, <clears throat> I would argue that anytime we 're willing to hurt somebody else to for our pursuit we 're fairly closed minded right like we're we 're closed minded when we would say. I am going to do what I want to do even if it hurts other people. And this is Saul to a T, right? He's fully closed-minded, you could say, about the reality of Jesus. Our particular day and age makes a claim to be open-minded, right? It's the kind of permissive culture that we have that would say, like, it's all kind of fine. And what's interesting about it is it's an open-mindedness that's totally defined by the self as an individual, right? So it's like, I'm open-minded as long as I'm in agreement with it, right? Like, that's actually what's going on. And so it's, an, it's actually just an echo chamber, right, where I'm only as open as, um, as it agrees with me. That's how open I am. Uh, and so I would argue that that's actually a closed-minded, limited perspective. Um, the, the time in which we're living, the philosophers would call post-modernity, right? Like, after the Enlightenment, after... Uh, the modern era and or at the late end of that era. And what is the uh, main insight of post-modernity or post-modernism is this. The insight is that all people view truth from a place or a perspective, that every tr- everyone views truth through a lens. This is an absolutely true critique. Everyone's limited by time and culture and place and their story, and we have limited perspectives to be sure. However, that doesn't mean that truth is entirely out of reach. It means what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, that we see through a glass dimly. There will be a time when we see perfectly. And, and, And the eschaton, the end... But as Paul says, we do see you can get to truth, but you you have to recognize that you don't have the full picture. Christianity, what's unique about it is that it's actually communicating a message that has been shaped by multiple perspectives. There's four gospel accounts to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Four perspectives. There's 12 apostles who got the message out. Right? There's multiple perspectives. You have Peter and you have Paul in the New Testament. You have the author of Hebrews. We have all these different lenses to see this fully orbed gospel. There's also the Old Testament compiled across centuries and cultures and places. And so what we have and why I'm saying all of this is because Paul is so self-assured that what he's going after is right. His perspective is shaped by centuries of tradition, but he's not open-minded about some very particular facts about Jesus rising from the dead. He hasn't encountered Jesus alive. He certainly, most scholars believe, would have encountered Jesus when he was alive before he was crucified. He most likely heard Jesus, maybe even was present when he was being accused and condemned. Yet, he hasn't met him alive. And so his version of of a Messiah would have been shaped like many other first century Jews, Around the idea of a conquering, nationalistic kind of king who would rid Jerusalem of foreign influence. And when he looked at Jesus, all he saw was a suffering, crucified king who included sinners and people of all kinds of stripes. And that kind of God did not fit Saul's categories. And so conversion begins with being stopped in your tracks, where our categories for reality stop working. And we begin to see the limitations of our perspective and the folly of our pursuits. So what is it that stops Saul? Uh, Jesus literally stops him, right? He's stopped by Jesus, alive, raised, and present. And so Saul meets him on this road to Damascus in a dramatic way. Saul, Saul, he gets his attention, addresses him. It reminds us of another story, I think. At least it reminds me of the story of Moses, where... He had also been very headstrong in how he was going to bring about Israel's deliverance, and it didn't work, and it didn't pan out. And now he's tending to some flocks on what the author of Exodus calls the mountain of God. And an angel of Yahweh appears to him in a burning bush. Remember this story? And the bush was on fire, but it's not consumed, is what the text says. Look at verse three. Sorry, it's not on your screen. I'll read it to you. Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. I love that. Like, you wonder how long the bush was burning, by the way. Like, had it been burning for years? And every time he just kind of walks past it and it's like, Adam, yeah, I don't have categories. And, and then I wonder if at one point he's going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally investigate this. I, I, yeah, I don't know. We don't know. But you wonder. And so he says, I'm going to turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. And when Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush Moses. Moses. There it is again, a personal address. He stops him. He turns him aside from the course that he was going. Here I am. And there's something that turns Moses aside. There's now something that turns Saul aside. He stops him in his tracks and moves him. God addresses him personally, and that's what's happening to Saul. And so what is it that Saul encounters? it's the same thing Moses encounters, a being who can address you, a being who can challenge you, who can call you out and stop you, a personal God who is above you. That's why Moses uh, in Exodus uses the language of holiness. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. There's this otherness to God. What this is getting at is the God we meet in the Bible is not a God of our own choosing. He's not a God that we pick. He's not a God who's less than us. And I often will hear, and you will hear it, and maybe you've said it, and, and that's okay, and the, the phrase, I can't believe in a God who, right? And then you fill in your blank. And, and when we begin down that logic, what we're actually doing is we're saying, I um, <laughs> need to define who God is. right?" For God to be God in my life, I actually have to call the shots, which, by the way, is a way of saying I have to be God in my life. That's how that works, quite logically. And so when we're being honest and we say, I can't believe in a God who, what we're doing is we're saying, I need to serve my own interests, and so what I'd really like in a God is a cosmic assistant. So, um, and that's, that's what we're getting at. But conversion works in a different way. Conversion bumps into a God who stops us in our tracks. Conversion works where we meet a God who can generate a cosmos and sustain it Intimately. And that kind of being is not a personal assistant. It's not a cosmic assistant. And so here's the point. Uh, Here's why we have to be stopped in our tracks. You can't be converted by something lesser than yourself. If you bump into something lesser than yourself, all you're doing is serving yourself. But if you're stopped in your tracks by someone greater than you, you're actually able to be transformed. Paul later tells the same story that Luke tells in Acts 9, in Acts 26, when he's telling it to others. And he says, what Jesus said to him on the road was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is a phrase of Jesus, kick against the goads. In other words, he's saying, "Paul or Saul, um, it's hurting you to push against what I'm trying to do in your life. Uh, a goad, by the way, is a small metal like spike on the end of a piece of wood. It would help an animal not go against the will of the master, right? Ouch, right? (laughs) It's that kind of thing. In other words, um, Paul's not understanding what Jesus is up to, and he's been resisting it. So Saul's continually going against what Jesus is trying to do in his life. Certainly, Saul had heard the good news. He heard Stephen preach, and he gave approval to his death. You have to wonder how uncomfortable he still was in the midst of that because you just unpack the entire Old Testament story I believe in that but I don't believe in your conclusion but I'm bothered like he must have been bothered in some way by that and so there was a goad in his life as he's doing these things maybe his conscience is pricked I don't know but the work of God in Saul's life involved goads and he wasn't listening so God now mercifully has to stop him in his tracks. Some of you, you came to faith in Jesus just with a goad. Like there was just something uncomfortable about sin in your life and God just melted you with a goad and, and, and without any resistance on your part because the truth and beauty and simplicity of the gospel just grasped you. Others of us have to be stopped by something more than goads. The, the late American novelist Flannery O'Connor said this about Saul. She said, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. And some of us are that way, right? Where sometimes it's the only way it's going to happen is if we're knocked off our horse instead of just merely goaded. And so one of the results of being stopped is it changes the questions you ask from self-serving questions to genuine questions of discovery. And this is what happens for Saul. He sees the Lord in a powerful way, and he asks a new question, who are you, Lord? Now I'm questioning your identity. I thought I understood your identity before, and so I persecuted Jesus. Now I am having to re all my categories for who is God? Who is this master's identity? Who are you? This is a good question of spiritual searching. Who is God? Not just like, what are... You know, what what's Christianity or whatever. Just really genuinely, who is God? If you get down to his identity, you'll unpack the gospel because God's own self is good news. But that's another sermon. So it says, who are you, Lord? And his categories just didn't fit with Jesus. Now, Jesus has the effect of making Saul rethink everything that he knew about God. This is the second thing that we bump into then in conversion, that not only does God have to stop you in your tracks to make you start rethinking all your categories and your perspectives, but he also has to become personal to you. And that's not to say that God wasn't a personal being before, but it's to say that he was remote to you in your perspective, in your experience of him. And so conversion is about his personal nature and identity crashing into your life such that you experience him personally. So God, in general, by the way, will never be compelling. God, in general, is not compelling. G-O-D has no compulsion to it. Um, it's God in person that's compelling. God in the abstract is of zero value to you, by the way. Um, God in the abstract will not bring personal transformation in your life. God, in general, it ends up generally just being a moral manager. This is how it worked for a long time in my life until I understood the identity of God as Father, Son, and Spirit and what He was actually about. So what happened for me was I just knew there was a boss in the sky that I had to make certain like uh, end a quarter like, uh, production for. <laughs> Read my Bible a certain amount. Da-da, you fill in the blanks. So God in general is maybe a moral manager or maybe worse yet, He's kind of a squishy old Santa character who can't seem to deal with the injustice in the world. I don't know. Um, Neither option is very good news. But God, in his particularity, will bring about conversion for you. And so Saul asks, who are you, Master or Lord? And he knows that he's encountered someone above him. He's been stopped in his tracks, and yet he's personal. Jesus addresses him and reveals his name. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's the particularity, actually, of Jesus that brings about conversion. And here's here's what I would encourage you with this morning. I would love to offer this safeguard or these rails for us as we think about our own personal conversion, that um, there are people who are genuinely converted from being irreligious people to religious people, which um, is a conversion of behavior, Practices. You may be able to introduce some reflective practices into your life if you go from irreligious to religious or something like that. There's an altered behavior, perhaps, and maybe that even messes and changes some of your own headspace in a positive direction, perhaps. Um, But that's not the kind of conversion we see in Acts. Uh, There are also people who um, convert to an experience. This was my story in part growing up. I had a profound experience at a Christian camp as a middle school kid. And then I had to keep going back to sustain a sense of ecstasy in relationship to God. I got to go make another decision, I got to raise my hand, I got to feel this thing and there needs to be a painting on a barn door and we have to have songs and there's a fire and I put something in the fire. Like, it was this whole litany of experience that made me kind of amped up. And that's what I kind of thought Christianity felt like. That there should be a an experience that I'm converted to, not a person. Others will convert as just pure and simple insurance. I'll keep my nose clean for the reward in the end, but that's actually just a trade deal. It's not conversion. And so here's the deal. Jesus addresses Saul in personal language. He's a person we enter relationship with. And so here's what we need to see in this story, that Saul was already a deeply religious person. He was deeply committed to the God of Israel and lived a life that was morally superior to anyone he knew. But it was an insignificant basis to build his life on. It was an insufficient basis to live his life on when he met Jesus. He realized the whole foundation of his life was cracked. Listen to C.K. Barrett, an Acts scholar, who says, what happened to Paul was not the resolution of an inward conflict or an unhappy, divided, unsatisfied man. It was the appearance of Christ to a self-satisfied and self-righteous man an appearance that had the immediate effect both of providing a new basis for his personal life and of initiating the Gentile mission. It's meeting a person that changes Saul. It's meeting a person that changes us. One of the best illustrations I think I can come up with here for the, part- the, the reason particularity is so important when it comes to conversion is this. I was predisposed to think marriage was a good thing in general, but had no interest in committing my life to it until I met Lauren in particular. What I mean was I had dated girls, I had an experience of what that felt like, both healthy and unhealthy, or sort of healthy, I don't know how healthy I had experienced it, but nonetheless I knew that I like being in a relationship-ish. But I'm also quite self-sufficient, so maybe I should go get a PhD and live alone, right? Like, that was kind of my mindset, until Lauren in particular came crashing into my life, right? And so marriage in general wasn't anything I was willing to, like, run towards or pursue because there was no particular person that was compelling. Are you with me? Okay, so here's the deal. Religion or spirituality or God in general in the abstract will be of no value to you until you meet Jesus in particular. When you understand and get to know Jesus in particular, it brings about radical transformation. There are things I do on the daily that I would have never imagined doing before because I'm compelled by Lauren in particular. I, I like—I just—I would have never considered making somebody else coffee uh, every morning, or, or or the thought of actually massaging another human's foot. I'm out, like. <laughs> But there's something compelling about her, right? So it's her in particular. She's not here this morning, so I can say whatever I want, and she probably won't listen to the podcast. So we're, I'm set um, until she does. I love you. So, But that's the point. I love her. Right? because she actually is captivating. And so God has to become particular in your life. You have to meet him as a person in Jesus, and this is how he reveals himself. And when you get to experience Jesus in particular, it brings about radical shifts. We'll come to that in a second. The third thing that I want to show you, though, about the particularity of Jesus is conversion means that God has to show you how he relates to you. Jesus has to show you what is good news about him to you. Um, And so what is it about Jesus in particular that's so compelling? He's revered in every culture as a great moral teacher. Um, He's certainly seen as virtuous, which is, I suppose, cool. But think about how transforming virtuous people are in your life. Were you ever compelled to live differently because another kid in your classroom always followed the rules? No, you kind of were annoyed by that kid, right? They were a burden to the rest of us, reminding the teacher when the test was and those kinds of things. we are like, no, shut up, right? You're... That kid's a burden. And what I would suggest to you is that if Jesus is merely morally superior to you and I, which he is, that would be a significant burden to bear. All right? And I think about growing up in Jesus' household, as James. Be more like your brother. And he's like, I can't. He's God. you know. <laughs> actually, which isn't totally true. They actually thought Jesus was off his rocker until the resurrection. So, uh, But um, here's the reality. Uh, <laughs> When Jesus comes as God in the flesh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, embodied in person, touchable, visible, relatable, there's something that moves Saul. He's compelled to reorient his entire life pursuit and base his identity on a new reality. What is it that Jesus says or does that brings that change about? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I would say to you that that line changed Paul's life. Here's why. Who's Paul or Saul persecuting? By the way, Saul has two names. Shaul is his Aramaic, uh, Jewish name. Paulus is his Roman name. So he switches when he stops ministering primarily to Jews to Gentiles. He just goes by his Roman citizen name, Paul. Okay, so those two are interchangeable that way. And so, what does Saul experience? And who's he persecuting? He's going after Jesus followers, right? He's going after individuals who claim Jesus as Lord. That's who he's persecuting. And so he has this letter of extradition to get Christians, right? But Jesus says, you're persecuting me. What's up with that? Where does that come from? Is that just because he's going after his name, his reputation? No, it's so much deeper than that. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when he tells kind of this parable about the judgment and those who would have, he says, anything you did for the least of these, I say to you, my brothers, you did to me right? As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. What this says is, this is another mental shelf category where we see Jesus talking about how he relates. He relates as one with those who trust him. He relates uh, intimately so much that he identifies his followers with himself. You're persecuting uh, David, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting Cole, you're persecuting me, right? That's, do you see how this connects? He's actually identifying with us as family. Uh, read this this week as well. This is, this is just food for thought here from John Calvin, actually. He says this, uh, not of Hobbes fame, but uh, <laughs> a couple hundred years before that. It says, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share in what He has received from the Father, He had to become ours and to dwell within us. For as I have said, that all that He possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with Him. And this is what He's talking about is this category of union being united to Him. This is the mystery of the gospel, friends, that Christ, um, if he remains outside of us, is of no value to us, but instead he chooses to unite himself to us so much so that my sin and all the rubbish and junk that comes out of my life and out of my heart are in reality his now. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he became sin, right? He who knew no sin became sin, right? that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus stands before the Father, he says, her guilt is my guilt. His shame is my shame. That's mine now. It's no longer his or hers. It's mine. It's not yours. It's his. And this is why the marriage metaphor works. Paul actually brings up marriage again in his letter to the Ephesians, where he says, uh, in the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies, right? He who loves his wife Uh, Loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Therefore, or because we are members of His body, therefore a man shall leave his wife, and and, or sorry, leave his father and mother, ah, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound, and I am actually referring to Christ in the church. That's what he's saying. And so, when I married Lauren, she had student loan debt. Guess whose that became? Mine, right? (laughs) And when I paid it, who's off the hook? Lauren is off the hook. It's as good as she had paid it because we're one now, right? And so this heart-melting mystery of the gospel uh, reveals a Jesus who we reject in unbelief but still chooses to relate to us and those who trust in him as uniting himself to us in genuine communion. And that's the wellspring of of transformation for us. The, the way you understand Jesus relating to you, saying, I will take all of your filth and I'll give you all of my riches because I'm one with you, changes everything. And it changed everything for Paul. And uh, my phone's dead. I have no idea what time it is. So, oh yeah, we need to wrap it up. <laughs> Three things <laughs> at the end. Look at verse 10. No, skip forward. Mm, verse 17. So Ananias, this guy who's in Damascus, who Lord, the Lord said, hey, I need you to go to this guy named Saul. And he's like, whoa, what? That guy who's killing Christians? Yeah, that guy. I want you to go to him. Uh, and so Ananias departs and enters his house and laying his hands on him, he says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. There's three transformations that happened in Paul's life as a result of that union with Jesus. The first is this, his identity is transformed. How do you build an identity? Through your accomplishments, right? That's how our culture builds identity. You accomplish something, you get to claim it, and that's you. Your value is in what you accomplish. Not so with the gospel. When you understand that Jesus Christ is now the foundation of an identity and your value, what happens is actually, right, you, you have a new identity that's received, not accomplished. And so what he does to express that is baptism, which is his way of expressing, I'm one with Christ. I'm dead to my old self of trying to strive and prove and earn, and I'm alive now in Christ, who I receive and uh, I uh, appropriate through his grace. Uh, and, and being united to Christ actually does something for you. It actually gets you, gives you the freedom to push away the tyranny of other people's opinions and the tyranny of your status. And instead, you get to land on your baptized identity, that you are one with Christ. The second thing that happens is it creates a shift in community for Saul. Um, our tendency is to find community that reinforces all of our own preferences and agreements. Uh, but look at how Christian community works in the Acts. It's incredible. Ananias, a guy who is Saul's enemy, the target of persecution, comes to him and says, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. I'm going to relate to you. We were enemies, former enemies, now I'm relating to you as family. This is Christian community. And so he comes and, and he actually relates to him uh, across that kind of boundary. And so the reason the world relates the way it does is because of fear of the other but Christians relate differently. Ananias relates to Saul according to the gospel. And so Saul, it says, is with the Christians, with the disciples. His life now moves into proximity with other believers. And so that's, what, that's actually what the gospel does. He moves us into a familial relationship where the substance of our relationship isn't our preferences, it's Jesus. And here's the last thing that happens. Uh, and this union with Jesus not only transforms Saul's identity and community as it does ours, it also transforms his mission, the mission of his life. He actually joins Jesus' mission such that Jesus' mission is now my mission. He's immediately proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, he's immediately bearing witness. And this is what Christ calls us to as well that where he puts you, he actually calls you a witness. And so he becomes someone who tells a story of someone greater than himself. And this is the story we tell every week at the tables, where we come and we say, we we remember one who gave his life for us, so that we would be caught up in that life, and we would demonstrate the power of that life through the Holy Spirit and the way we live and relate to others. So let me invite you to the table as we sing and worship and respond to the goodness of this God who calls us to be converted, who stops us in our tracks of selfishness, who meets us personally and all the particularities of who he is and relates to us by union and calling us uh, one with himself. Let's pray.